0: Good morning. It's good to be here. Uh, Believe me, I don't take this uh, opportunity for granted. I would like to begin by reading a, a portion of the text that we want to look at this morning. It's 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5. And if you have a New Testament, I invite you to turn and follow along with me. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out His commands. This is love for God, to obey His commands. And His commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world, only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let's pray. Lord, you have given us your Holy Spirit to illuminate your word. Our prayer would be that he would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear what you have to say we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, John's not always easy to understand. At least I don't find him easy to follow. He is more uh, east than west. His uh, style of writing is more a stream of consciousness than it is Paul's apparently more logical way of writing. Uh, Paul uses a lot of conjunctions between his paragraphs, words like uh, for and because and therefore and 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 but, so that we can follow his argument more closely. Uh, John, because he's more Eastern in his thinking, I think, uses a a different style, which is, is a stream of consciousness. He lets one thought stream into another. He develops an idea. A word strikes his attention. He develops that word, which leads him to another word, which he develops, and on and on it goes. So sometimes it's difficult to see the relationship between the different paragraphs. That's why I think people find uh, John sometimes difficult. But despite some of the difficulties in the text, his themes in this book are crystal clear. He has three of them. Truth, righteousness, and love. And he cycles his way through those three ideas three times in the book. Truth, righteousness, and love. Truth, righteousness, and love. Truth, righteousness, and love. Not always in that order, but he always incorporates those uh, three ideas. His way of getting the truth across to us is repetition. Uh, When I was uh, uh, in high school, which is a long, long time ago, I, I was fortunate enough to to attend a high school that required three years of Latin. I didn't think I was fortunate at the time, but in looking back on it, uh, I give thanks for that education. It it helped me to understand how the English language works. We had a a great teacher. She's about five feet two inches tall. I thought she was the Ancient of Days, but she probably was about fifty-five. And she was really spunky, and she really loved her subject. And I can still remember standing on a chair, or standing on her desk on a couple of occasions, and reciting long Latin texts from Caesar's Gallic Wars and other, other Latin manuscripts. She had a, a slogan that she put on the uh, blackboard, chalkboard, that was in Latin. Repetitio es mater studiorum. Now, you don't even need to know Latin to translate that phrase. Repetition is the mother of learning, of instruction. And she, she believed that axiom. She was old school. She taught by drill. And we went over and over and over Latin paradigms until to this day, 50 years later, I can remember most of them. Repetition is a good way to teach. Now, that's what John is doing. He repeats himself. Truth. Love, righteousness, righteousness, love, truth, truth, love, righteousness. And here, in this final section, he brings all three of these ideas uh, together. Shows how they're related. Now, let's talk first about the truth. Verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah is born of God. Now, as you know from from our studies in 1 John, John is not concerned so much about informing Jews about the fact that Jesus is their Messiah. He's talking about the Incarnation. When he talks about Jesus as the Christ, he is talking, he's referring to a particular sort of Christ, the God who became incarnate among us. See, this is the truth about which Paul or John is mostly concerned. The Incarnation is what C.S. Lewis called the central miracle of Christian faith. It's the miracle that explains every other miracle. If this Jesus that we read about in the Gospels and the Apostles knew and loved and lived with for three and a half years is really God, then it gives an explanation to every other miracle. If He's not, then the other miracles are inexplicable or just simply random shows of of power. But if Jesus is God, everything falls into place. Now, this is a difficult concept to get our minds around. There's no analogy for this anywhere else in, in history or religious studies. So the early Christians tried to state it in terms of uh, axioms, aphorisms. One ancient uh, saint, one early saint said, the father became the daughter's son. It's interesting, it's almost like a koan. The father became the daughter's son. G.K. Chesterton said, the infinite became infinitely small. It's hard to put it into words, but it's this idea that God cared so much about us that He incarnated Himself in human flesh. Now, as Jackson pointed out a number of times in our studies, there was a reason for, for John's preoccupation with this issue. There was a man... In, in Ephesus, which was John's hometown, and the church to which uh, he addresses this book was located in Ephesus, whose name was Sorenthus, who had defected. He had apostatized. He had been in the church for a while, but he had abandoned the faith and was now, uh, had now set up a rival teaching center in, uh, in Ephesus. John says, uh, They went out from us, Sorenthus and his followers, because they were not of us. They were never really regenerated. They were never really Christians. They just played church, played the game. They finally defected, walked away from the faith, set up their own school. Now, we know a lot about Serentius because a lot of the early writers of the 82nd century, Irenaeus, Ignatius, Eusebius, and others, knew this man, had conversed with him, were familiar with his teaching. Serentius basically was a philosopher, he was a Greek classical philosopher. Now, now, that meant... I'm not going to take much time on this, but I want to, want to just remind you of some things you, you probably have heard in the past. The Greek classical philosophers were basically idealists. In other words, they believed that ultimate reality rested in the ideas, which were located in a divine mind, which they called the Lagos. The Lagos contained all the thoughts and words and, and uh, ideas... Uh, an infinite number of ideas, and that what we see around us that is material is simply a projection of those ideas. So, basically, they denied the material. They went even further. They said the body is bad. So, the idea of the divine mind, the Lagos, incarnating itself in a body was abhorrent. So, they denied it. And... Uh, Sorenthus set up a rival teaching center and was teaching an apostate form of Christianity. He had a lot of the ideas that we call Christian, but he denied the deity of Christ. He denied the incarnation. As far as I know, uh, every cult, every so-called Christian cult, at least everyone that I'm familiar with, denies the incarnation. It's a central miracle, central issue, central doctrine, in the Christian faith, which John is concerned to establish in the minds of uh, the people in the church there in, in Ephesus. And the way he goes about it is to point out, I knew the man. <laughs> it's an eyewitness report. He's not writing theology. He's writing his, uh, uh, an account of his experiences. I knew him, he said. Remember chapter 1, verse 1? One? Uh, that which was from the beginning, which we, apostles, have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, gazed upon, scrutinized is the word, which we handled with our hands. It's actually a word that means to embrace. I hugged him. John says. You know, young men, being what they are, they look to rush up the rough house and shove each other around and whack each other on the back. And John says, I did all of that. And he was a real man. But he was God, see. John said, I was there. I saw it. Now, remember how he begins his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. That's Plato's Word. That's Syrenthus' Word. The logos, the divine mind from which all ideas emanate. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and Syrenthus would agree up to that point. But John goes on. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. See, that's this amazing fact of the Incarnation. Jesus was fully God, and yet He was fully man. He wasn't a man in a, you know, God in a man suit, like Superman. He was fully human, all the way to the core, and all the attributes of humanity that you and I have, but He was also fully God at one, at the same time. Now, this is mystery. Now, Charles Wesley says, to his mystery, all how, how, do we, how do we understand this? Can't explain it. See? Can't explain it. The early councils tried to come up with a creed or a statement or a doctrine or something that would incorporate this idea in such a way that it could be explained. They couldn't. All they could say is, We believe that He was fully God and at the same time fully man, and that is mystery, and we can go no further. See? That's all we can do. But let me tell you what it means. I used to sit in theology classes, mood, endlessly debate different theories of the incarnation and how it came, and it just left me cold. Finally, it dawned on me one day what it actually meant. The incarnation is about God's love and His willingness to do anything to get next to us. Uh, you know, the- theologians talk a lot about. God's communicable attributes and His non-communicable attributes. By non-communicable, they mean attributes like His omniscience, His omniscience, omnipresence. These are not communicated to us. But there are others like love and compassion and joy. Those are communicable. But I've never heard a theologian discourse on the humility of God. And yet that's one one of His characteristics. Paul put it this way. Though He Christ Jesus, was in the form of God. He uses a specialized word. Morphe means essence. He was in the essence. He was God. That's Paul's point. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself. Of what did He empty Himself? The independent use of His attributes as God. See, He never ceased to be God. But He gave up using His strength and His power and His wisdom for a time and became a human being just as we're human beings. Always God, but fully man. He emptied Himself. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a a cross. You understand what He's saying? That's God come close to us. See, you, read, you read these so-called pagan myths, and, and they often contain ideas of gods who come to earth and walk among us. Those are more than pagan myths. Those, are, those represent the longing of our heart that God would come and get next to us, that we could know Him, that we could have, have an intimate relationship with Him. It's the hunger of every human heart, something that God has placed in our, in our being. We must have God. And the thought that He would come to us and make Himself available to us is just mind-boggling. The myths perpetuated that idea, but uh, as the Christmas carol puts it, the hopes and fears of all the years were met in Him that night, see. The myths came true. God actually came and, and walk, walked among us. Uh, one, one of the big names in Old Testament theology is a German theologian by the name of Gerhard von Rod. He's not very well known in evangelical circles, but... He has probably had the dominant effect upon Old Testament theology for the last 50 years. He says that the whole Bible is about God's eruptions. Now, that's not our word erupt. Erupt means to break out. Volcanoes erupt. That's the word erupt I R R U P T O N to break in. But the whole Bible is about God breaking into human life and letting us know that He cares. As Celtic Christians put it, the the miracles, these eruptions, are thin places in the universe where we see the smiling, caring face of God. Now, uh, Von Rod says, for example, look at the first two chapters, the way the Bible begins. first chapter is all about creation uses the word Elohim for God, which is the generic name for God, the name that all the pagan nations use in their religions to refer to God. Babylonians, Assyrians, Canaanites. The chief god of their pantheon was El or Elohim. So in chapter 1, you have the creator God of all the nations creating the world. And you have a lot of myths and cosmologies from ancient pagan uh, uh, religions that describe a God who creates the world. But nothing like chapter 2. Read on into chapter 2. His name changes. He's no longer Elohim. He's Yahweh, which we know from his conversation with Moses means I am with you. It's actually taken from the uh, uh, first-person singular form of the verb to be. I am with you. I'm Emmanuel. Now, y- y- you see, that's, that's something unusual. But not only is His name unusual, but if I can use the the expression, you see God getting down and dirty, down on His knees, working in the mud, making a man, and then putting Him in a paradise so that He can walk with Him in the cool of the evening. You see, that's God interrupting, breaking into human history, letting us know that He cares. See, I believe that's what all the miracles are in the Old Testament. Again, they're not just random displays of power. There are these thin places in the universe where you see the smiling face of God. Let me give you an example. One of the strangest miracles in the Old Testament, one that uh, uh, you know, I, I just love. It's a story about Elisha and uh, a group of prophets, sons of the prophets, young seminary students. And uh, they got... The group got too large, so they had to enlarge their lodge. So they all picked up axes and went out in the woods, cut down trees. And like most young preachers, they didn't know anything about manual labor. And uh, one guy takes a big, hard swing at a tree and breaks the axe head off. It flies out into the river and sinks. And he goes, "Boy, it was bowed. And Elisha extends his hand, and the axe head floats. It floats to the top. Actually, the Hebrew word means it flowed. It flowed off the ground and right into the hand of the young prophet. Now, what in the world is that all about? You know what it says to me? That God cares about lost things. Lost keys. Lost contact lenses. Lost lunker trout. Right, Tim? He also cares about lost loves and lost spouses and lost health. These things matter to Him. My grandchildren used to come weeping when they were little because they'd lost something or broken something. (laughs) My heart would almost break too. Not because I cared about the thing it would be easily replaced, but because I cared about them. Now that's the point. That's the point of the Incarnation. He cares. He cares. You go to the New Testament. What's the miracle that stands out The one it's almost always referred to? It's the changing of water into wine. What in the world is that all about? Theologians say that's well, a foretaste of the wedding feast of the, of the Lamb. Maybe. I don't know. I just see it as God wanting us to have fun. It delights Him when we enjoy ourselves. So He moves in, into, into our life in this particular situation to give joy, delight, It is eruptions. And the greatest eruption of all time is the Incarnation. You no longer work from outside in. You work from inside out. You became one of us. Let me read a quote from Dorothy Sayers. Uh, Sayers was one of the inklings. She was a friend of uh, Tolkien and Lewis Charles Williams, used to get together and read their manuscripts to one another. She said this, For whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is limited in suffering and subject to sorrows and death. He had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. Whatever the game he's playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life family life, and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it all well worthwhile. Why was it worthwhile? So why, why was it worthwhile? Because he wanted us to know that he cares. Now, uh, let me give you a really homely illustration. Forgive me, will you? This is really hokey. Uh, As many of you know, we have a a ministry house up in McCall. It was given to us by a friend. It doesn't belong to us, but he bought it gave it to us to use. We invite clergy couples up just to spend time with us. We also make it available to couples so they can get away for a a while. Uh, It's right on the golf course uh, on Burt's 4, if you know that golf course. And out in front is like a park. There's big spruces and pines, uh, and a kind of a cleared-out area. In June of every year, uh, which is spring up there, ground squirrels start popping out of the ground, like little picket pins, you know. And Kelly and I love to sit on the back porch and watch them. And then pretty soon the babies emerge, and they're just little bitty guys, you know, and they're running all over the place chasing each other and falling, tumbling around and chasing their tails, and they're just so much fun to watch. Well, uh, a couple of years ago, I was sitting out there, and a, 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 sort of a John Deere green truck pulls up on the cart path, and this guy gets a hose out pokes in the hole and starts gassing my ground squirrels. So I go, hey, do you have to do that? Yeah, they chew holes in the fairway. Okay. So, back, so down, I went back and sat down and started thinking, now how can I mourn these uh, ground squirrels next year? Uh, the horse, I could put a sign up there. It says, "Beware of the green, you know, the mean green machine." Whatever. That wouldn't work. Or I could get down over one of the holes and yell, "Beware of the wrath to come!" <laughs> I, I, it wouldn't do any good. You see where I'm going? The only way that I could get that across to those ground squirrels that they're in danger was to become one of them. To be born one of those little tiny ground squirrels that could be crushed by a predator just like that, to be just that vulnerable and grow up with them so I could warn them about the wrath to come. Because I cared, see, I cared. Now, you know, no illustration works very well because the distance between a ground squirrel and a human being is finite. We're simply a higher order of mammals. The distance between God and the human race is infinite. We have no words to express the extent to which He condescended to our level to become a human being. Why did He do it? Because He cares. Because He wants to get next to us. See, uh, someone pointed out to me this morning, I've forgotten who it was now, it, oh, it was Christian, he came up and quoted a verse in Deuteronomy. He talked about Israel. What nation has a God so near to them and Paul picks up on that, of course. He as closes as our mouth. He's right here. He's present. That's what the what the incarnation is all about. Now, this is the truth, which, which John is, wants to elaborate upon, explicate. But this is love. You can't see it any other way. He didn't do it because he was compelled to do it. He did it because he loves us. And I don't know about you, but when I think, just sit down long enough, and get, get quiet, get silent, and think about what the Incarnation means, it just evokes in me an enormous amount of love for Him. Why would He do it? Why would He do it? Because He loves me. That's incredible. See, John had a clear pick. That's why he kept referring to himself as the Apostle that Jesus loved. He was overwhelmed by the love of God as he saw it in Christ that 's why John says in the latter part of, of five one everyone who loves the Father loves his children at as well as well you, as you know as we move through the book a number of times, John has said things to the effect to this effect that God loves us, we can only love him in return. Uh, Jonathan, uh, our horn player, came up after the morning service and said that uh, when he finally got around to telling Sue Ellen that he loved her, she said, Jonathan, I've loved you all along. Okay? Now, that's what God said. So, you know, when, when we finally get around to saying, I love you, say, I've always loved you. Look at the Incarnation. I've always loved you. And okay? uh, that, in turn, just evokes more love, which draws more love out of Him, which evokes more love in us. It's the only response that we can make. To love Him in return. You know, uh, that's always the way in which God motivates us. He doesn't, he, doesn't use ne- he doesn't necessarily use a carrot and a stick. He uses love to, to motivate us. Um, in, in the Old Testament, you know, there's the great commandment, Shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, your neighbor, your Sounds very hard. How do you do that? How do you conjure up this love for God? Before he, he issues that command, he reminds them of the Exodus. And he says, I bore you upon eagles' wings. Now, love the Lord your God with all your heart. You know how eagles teach their eaglets to fly? They seem kind of harsh. They kick them out of the nest. And you know, a little eagle is, you know, he's, he's dropping like a rock. And, and Mother Eagle swoops under and picks him up, takes him back up, and then very unceremoniously dumps him off again. Oh, here he goes. See? And after a while, his little wings get strong enough that he can fly. But you just keep picking him up. Keeps, and that's what God says. You, you folks were learning first steps in statecraft. You're learning how to be a nation. You were stumbling and falling and you're about to auger in. I just kept picking you up, kept picking you up. Now, doesn't that make you want to love me? See, that's always the way God evokes a response. Yes, there are things to do, but they grow out of His love for us. Now, this, I think. Uh, well, I've jumped ahead of myself. The, the, what happens to us as we begin to love God is that we begin to love others. There's both a subjective and objective side of that. I think we learn to love by watching God at work. But there's also something is, that takes place in our heart. It's called a new birth. Regenerated. We're turned inside out. Instead of thinking about ourselves, we begin to, to think of others. And uh, this is, the, this is what Paul would call the end game. The, the, the goal of our instruction is love, he says. That's what we're all about. It's not Christians whose heads are full of a, of a lot of knowledge and theory and doctrine and charts, but people who really know how to love others. That's the key that unlocks every heart, if it can be unlocked at all. Lewis Carroll, one of his fantasies, uh, has a lock. It's running around all over the place looking for someone to unlock me, he says. And I, I, that's what I see out there in the world, in our culture. I read a statement by uh, Frank O'Hara the other day. He's, he's a homosexual. He's gay. And, and he said, I am the least difficult of men. All I want is boundless love. And that really struck me because I just realized again that the homo- homosexual condition is the human condition. To a deep loneliness, a search for identity, a normal and natural love for relationship and unconditional affection. See? doesn't mean if you're straight or you're gay, what we want is to be loved. See? And that's what opens the heart. It's, it's not our profound theology, it's not our nifty audiovisual pre, you know, promotions. It's Christians who love each other and, and love people in the world. That's what opens the heart. Some of you are familiar with Charles Adams' uh, cartoons. He's a cartoonist for The New Yorker. I get a chuckle out of him. He's kind of quirky. Actually, he's dead. Now, he died a number of years ago. But his his cartoons always had a point. Uh, There's one that was on the cover of The New Yorker a whole bunch of years ago. It showed uh, this kind of rumpled up guy in his bathrobe and bathing suit. Not bathing suit. What do you wear at night? Uh, Pajamas. And, uh, you know, he's all rumpled and scowl on his face. He's obviously an old curmudgeon. And uh, he's locking the door to his apartment, and he has two deadbolts and a, and a bolt and a bar across the front and a chain lock and everything, you know, and he's scowling the whole time. What he doesn't see is someone has slipped an envelope under the door with a heart on it. It's a valentine. And I saw that, I thought, bingo. You know, here's his personal security system being breached. How's it done? By love. Now, you know, what greater demonstration of of love than in the midst of our indifferent life, God slips that valentine under our door. And now we have the opportunity to do the the same for others. So there's an old story Eusebius tells about Eusebius was the first uh, church historian uh, John was brought in for his final sermon to the church in Ephesus. He was close to 100 years old. He was very feeble. had to be carried in. They propped him up. and so They all sat back to wait for something profound. John says, little children love one another. That was the message. That's what we're all about. But here's the question. What is love? My father used to quote a little poem. Love is such a funny thing. It's almost like a wizard. It winds itself around your heart and nibbles at your gizzard. Is that love? You know, some... Get weak in the knees, whatever you know, what, You know, love can just be a sentimentality. We need a definition of love. Otherwise, you don't know what you're talking about. So how do we know what love is like? John tells us. Verse 2, this is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out His commandments. And you see, this is how His, his theme of righteousness fits in with truth, love, and righteousness. The truth is the incarnation, which evokes love. What in the world is love? Well, it, it just amounts to righteousness. Jesus Himself said that. What, what is love? Well, it, it's all summed up in the Law and the Prophets. Right? For us, it's summed up in Jesus' commands. If we follow Christ... Let me put this as simply as I can. If you read the Gospels, and you read the commentary on the Gospels, which is the, the other writers... Um, and, 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 and you follow in obedience what they have to say. You'll be a loving person. That's what he's saying. Look at Paul. 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. So, see, he's not, he's not giving us an abstract definition of love. He's telling us what it looks like. How it behaves. What it does. So, you see, that completes the cycle. Truth. God loves us. He wants to get next to us. We respond to him in love, and then he tells us what that love looks like. And then this wonderful touch, which is characteristic of John, his commands are not burdensome. Not interesting. We don't think that way. How can he say his commands are not are not burdensome? Well, let me let me tell you something about John first. He's a he's a great shepherd, great pastor. Uh, as, I'm also teaching First John to the group of. I have three different pastors groups that I meet with. And every time I have an opportunity, I point out John as a good shepherd, the way he pastors people. See? John has to say some hard things to people. But he always follows up with a word of encouragement. Always. He doesn't leave people twisting in the wind. encourages. He ministers to their helplessness. He shows them a way out. He gives them hope. For example, he says some hard things in chapter 2. And he does a strange thing. He goes into what amounts to a hymn or a creed or something. You know, he says, I've written unto you, I've written unto you. And he says, I've written unto you, because you young men, because you have overcome the evil one. What does he mean? He says, well, it's a struggle. It's tough. But you're in a battle It's already won. See, he's not saying... You know, I want you to follow Jesus in obedience and you have a one in four chance of doing it. He says, No, you are you're fighting a battle. You've already got it done. It's a done deal. So go for it. Now, I don't know how many of you are watching the you know, the the Jets uh, who were they playing? Uh Steelers, yeah, I forgot. Yeah, you know, that's a close game, seventeen to seventeen. Got a to kick a field goal. Happened to miss. What if you knew that beforehand? Well, you could play the game with abandon. You still might get knocked down. You might get, you know, you might get taken out of the game. But you don't worry about the outcome. I said, John's so wonderful about this. You know, tells us some hard stuff. It lifts us up. Now he says, "Hey, I want you to follow Christ in obedience because that's what it means to love. And His commands are not burdensome. Why? Because they're done by faith. <laughs> they're not done by self-effort. Did you get that point? This is the victory that has overcome the world." i.e., our faith. A group of people came to Jesus once and said, what can we do to work the works of God? you remember what Jesus said? This is the work of God that you believe in Me. How audacious to think you can work God's works. Only God can work His, God's, but, uh, His works. But if you trust in Me, you can do them too. Okay? So we just, you know, love is pure. Ooh, that's hard. Love is patient. Ooh, that's harder. What do I do? Get a grip on God. Help me. Help me. I can't do it. Help me. That's why His, his commands are not burdensome. There's no prayer of St. Benedictine that, uh, that I've stuck over my office off and pray it. Oh, God, come to my aid. Oh, Lord, make haste to help me. It's actually taken from a song. Great prayer. All right. I'm so impatient. God, help me. Make haste to come to my aid. And that's how we make our way uh, through life. Now, time's up, and we have much to cover. Let me just say one thing about what remains, because I want to get down to the end of John's uh, argument, his appeal. You notice that 5, 1 through 5 is bracketed by the phrase, Son of God. This is an example of his stream of consciousness thinking. It starts out with belief that Jesus is the Son of God. He goes first full circle through those three items, back again to the truth, that He is the Son of God, which triggers a thought in his mind, and off he goes in another direction. This, I'm reading verse, what is it, 6. This is the one who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. What on earth is he talking about? You know, oceans of ink have been spilled on this uh, verse by commentators. and Nobody knows for sure, but let me tell you what I think. I may be wrong, but I'll tell you what I think. You remember the time when when John was standing at the foot of the cross, and the soldiers came to put, put... people that were crucified, the three men, to death by breaking their legs. They came to Jesus. He was already dead. He'd given up his spirit. Gone back to God. Saw the soldier pierced his side with a spear. And what came out? Same two words, blood and water. And John says, I saw it. I saw it. I was a witness. I testified to it that it was true. Same word they uses eight times in this verse. The witness, the testimony, the witness. I saw it. Out came blood and water. In other words, what's he talking about? Well, if one of the other soldiers had died at the same time Jesus did, and and the soldier had pierced his side, you know what would come out? Blood and water. Why? Because he's a human being. So what's the point? He was a real human being. See, he's cycling back again to this idea of the Incarnation that this man who hung on the cross was God Himself in the flesh. Perfectly identified with us. See, that's why Charles Wesley says, Tis mystery all. The immortal dies." How do we understand that? How do we explain it? We can't. But again, it's the smiling face of God. He cares. We matter to Him. Now, uh, he adduces some witnesses. He said, you know, there's... Several things that witness to this fact, but basically it boils it down to two. His eyewitness report, which is found in the Gospels, and the witness of the Holy Spirit, which corroborates the witness of, of the Gospels. I don't have time to develop those ideas. You can look at them for yourself. But what he's saying is, when you read the Bible, the Holy Spirit tells you it's true. Isn't that interesting? I, I don't argue with people anymore. I just encourage them to read the Bible. Read the gospel. I, I buy a, a New Testament and give it to them. Say, so read it. See what you think. Start with John. Because I know if anything will unlock them at all, it's the love of God that will unlock their heart. And the Holy Spirit will witness to the truth as they read the Gospels. That's hard. They know. They know. You have to convince them. That's why I, don't, I wouldn't spend ten seconds on, on apologetics or defense of the Gospel. Like Luther said, it's a lion, open the cage, let it out. You know, just, just let people read the Bible. Turn them upside down if they're really serious and they want to know God. Now, he says, if you do that, if you read the Bible, and you you feel the Spirit, you know, His witness in your heart, you need to know something. And this is bottom line. He who has the Son has life. An unequivocal statement. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. No third way. No synthesis. No mediating position. It's black and white. If you have the Son, you have eternal life. That means you're joined to God for eternity. That's what eternal life is. But if you don't follow the Son, you don't have life. Very simple. Now, I want to try something, okay? We're done with this text, so you can relax. I want you to reply audibly. Don't raise your hand. Just reply audibly. It's a yes or no question. Zero sum question, okay? Do you have the sun? What do you have? All right, now I'm going to ask another question, and I don't want anybody to say anything. Don't raise a hand. Don't respond audibly. Is it possible that you don't have the sun? Then what have you failed to acquire? Now, let's pray. Bow your head, will you? In the quietness of your own heart, if you have not yet made the decision to follow Christ, this one who loves you like you wouldn't believe, I want you to pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you did for me. I want to follow you forever Pour your love into my heart. Amen. Now look up. I'm going to ask you again. Do you have the son? What do you have? All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father. Our hearts uh, just want to jump out of our skin when we read these incredible facts that you really do care, that you came all the way in order to establish. your love for us. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.